Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So should we start a Sessions Death Watch? I, we've had a lot of death titles lately, but it might be time to start I one think for Jeff Sessions. that if we don't call this the Kislyak of Death Edition... We just we should pack it up and go home. The wow. Kislyak of Death Edition. Because he does seem to have that effect on people. Seriously, has anyone here Phone met calls? with Ambassador Kislyak? Because if you have, <laughs> this like, is the time. That was the time, just and we need up. to prepare for your funeral. <laughs> I sat next to him at a dinner once. Did you? <laughs> yeah. Was that a long time ago? It was a long time did ago. You You're probably did safe. You did you discuss <laughs> the 2016 election? No, it was before the 2016 election. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> wow. My wife has had dinner with Ambassador Kislyak, and not even I knew about it. <laughs> no, no one asked me. Certainly not under oath. <laughs> but if they had, I'm pretty sure that you. And have... I washed my hands afterwards really well. You didn't drink any tea, did you? No. Okay. I'm pretty sure that uh, 18 USC 1001 also applies to rational security podcasts. Yeah, you are you not. Have... It is a crime <laughs> to uh, make a materially false statement on okay, the rational ask, security podcast. Asked and answered. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mm-hmm. sat next to him at a dinner. <laughs> All right, for the record. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Kislyak of Death Edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Wall Street Journal. Not personally ever met the ambassador from Russia. Never had the pleasure. I also have never had any conversations or contacts of any sort. I have not ambassador now, nor have ever been a, a, an acquaintance of Ambassador Kitley. Can I tell you my favorite, like, weird Russian ambassador? Not Russian ambassador, sorry, but there's this guy who works for the... I think he's technically... He claims that he works for the United Nations mission, uh, but also works in the embassy. And you see him showing up, like, at think tank panels... And he came oh, to yeah, a there's book always talk that one. I gave one. But it's this same guy, and everyone knows him. And he always comes up and he's like, I'm very interested in the cyber policy. <laughs> yes, it is real. I go to lots of talks. <laughs> Here's my card. I work for United Nations, so it's okay. <laughs> Excellent. I once actually called at the embassy and asked to speak to him for some story I was working on. And there was this long pause on the phone. <laughs> well, um, we can give him the message. Like, yes, please do. I'm a reporter. <laughs> I met him recently. Uh, he told me many things. He told me many things I wanted to follow up on. Oh, this week's slow news week, you guys. Good Lord. Whatever will we talk about? Uh, first up, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, you remember him, not for long, is under fire for his conversations with the Russian ambassador to the United States. While the Trump administration is trying to deflect attention on Russia investigations, is it time to appoint a special prosecutor to look into President Trump's potential links to Russia? And the U.S. carries out new airstrikes in Yemen while questions linger over a recent raid against al-Qaeda. Um, okay, let's start with the big news of the day. We're recording this Thursday morning. Uh, last night, the Washington Post and some newspaper called The Wall Street Journal reported that Jeff Sessions had, in fact, met with at least twice the Russian ambassador, Ambassador Kislyak. Um, this is something that he did not disclose, either in written questions or in his Senate confirmation hearing when he was asked, both by Senators Leahy and Senator Franken. Um, 
the calls now for him to recuse himself uh, are building, uh, recuse himself from the investigation. Or resign. Or so resign. There's some Senator Schumer, now. right? The Democratic Or leader. walk the plank. Or walk Is the plank. Is that an option? That could possibly be. It's, it's early yet. I mean, it's only 1045. Let's unpack the immediate impact of these revelations uh, and and put it in the context, too, of this, pre- of this broader narrative that is evolving about Trump administration contacts. Um, you know, Ben, you take this first. How how bad is this for the attorney general? Well, I mean, politically, it it is disastrous. Um, it, uh, you know, first of all, he he almost certainly should have recused himself before. Um, because he was an advisor to Trump, or because he knew yeah, he I mean the Trump the, the conduct of the Trump campaign to which he was <laughs> with which he had a formal affiliation was at issue. Now, at least in some limited sense, according to a story by a certain person in the Wall Street Journal, his personal conduct is at issue. Um, and so, under those circumstances, there is simply no question that a recusal is mandatory. Um, now. I am, you know, yesterday on Twitter, there was a whole lot of hue and cry that he'd committed perjury. I think that is very premature. And, I, you know, I don't like it when people chant lock her up about Hillary Clinton. And I also don't like it when people convict the attorney general of criminal activity without an indictment, without knowing the facts. I'm very skeptical this would turn into a genuine perjury case. Is um, that because he said that he'd not talked to them about anyone about campaign issues? Right. So, I mean, I think if you look at those questions in context, they're pretty clearly conversations, uh, you know, questions about contacts in the context of his role as a surrogate of the campaign or his role as a, you know, and and what it sounds like he's admitted to is that there were a couple of uh, short uh, meetings on non-campaign matters uh, and I just think it's, first of all, perfectly plausible that in the co- in the context in which he was asked that question, that might have slipped his mind. Uh, and moreover, even if it was, even if he was being shady, I don't think the uh, I don't think the circumstances are so lacking in ambiguity that it would rise to the level of a prosecutable perjury. That said, um, it looks awful. And more than that, uh, it is mind-boggling, just mind-boggling that after in the midst of what happened with Michael Flynn, nobody went back and checked and, and, and verified and corrected the record here. And, you know, it is a startling example of the astonishing incompetence with which the uh, – uh, senior and senior levels of this administration are operating. Can I just take a further step back, though, and note that I, I think what's most striking about this is not the mismanagement of the issue and the potential perjury, but that we have yet another confirmation of yet another contact between a Trump campaign advisor and, your and, dinner companion. And, and my dinner <laughs> companion and the Russian government after the, you know, Trump and the campaign and the White House have denied up and down that these contacts took place. They called the stories reporting on this some weeks ago, uh, complete fabrications. And yet here is another instance. And so they need to just let that counter narrative go and open the rubs on this um, and cooperate with these investigations and try to 
uh, change the subject that way rather than refuting this and then constantly being shown up as lying to the public, which is what this story really means, yes. is that they have lied to the public. Um, that, I will also say, you know, I, I don't think it's credible for Sessions to claim that uh, – you know, he didn't really remember these contacts, but if he had a couple of brief meetings with the ambassador, he's confident it wasn't about the campaign because, you know, he, he was- remembers he it was, that well. Right. He was a named senior advisor on foreign policy and national security right. to the Trump campaign and met with a host of diplomats. And I can tell you, I was a minor advisor on one set of issues to the other campaign. I met with a lot of diplomats and all they wanted to talk about was the campaign. That's why they wanted to meet with me. Right. It's just so not it's, plausible. It's that it not plausible. Up. Yes, I think I I think Tammy was right in the sense that right, it's yet another shoe dropping, right? Yet another person with contacts or getting to the point of well, nobody nobody had any contacts with Russians except for my national security advisor, except for my campaign manager, except for my foreign policy advisor, whoever Carter Page was. Right, this is a millipede's worth of shoes. My senior right, my senior national security advisor, and now the attorney general of the United States. I mean, it's just it's becoming. Um, like the story is just expanding in almost shocking ways. Um, and it's sort of shocking that they thought that this, that they could get away with this. But, you know, on the perjury issue, it's sort of, I, and I, I agree with Ben's instinct and I, uh, an initially agreed, right? So, so Ben, you sort of, you, uh, you'd made that observation in the period between the, when the Washington Post had, had reported, um, uh, the fact of the phone calls and whenever the Wall Street Journal then later reported that it was subject, uh, the subject of an FBI investigation. Which I th- actually think is a, um, uh, a, uh, sort of a, a critical or important distinction or, or development, right? That we're seeing more and more richness, right? Not just that these things took place, but that they are also of interest to the ongoing investigation. So a couple things. One, um, Sessions, much like Michael Flynn, does seem to be changing his story in terms of what was discussed. It's completely implausible to me that they didn't discuss the campaign. First, he said, you know, no, there was they didn't discuss the campaign at all. Uh, then he said, uh, or first he said he didn't remember what they discussed. Then he said they didn't discuss the campaign at all. Then now he's saying maybe they discussed the campaign, but only in like a superficial sort of way. So already, like in a relatively brief period of time, we're seeing his stories change. The other thing is he didn't just make that statement, the no answer, um, in response to Alfred. Franken's uh, question, he also did it in response, he did it in written responses, um, which which the notion that you would read, I, I sort of, I can buy the idea that you would be caught off guard by a question and it would slip your mind in a, in a stressful situation if it was in sort of the ordinary course of business. That said, that certainly doesn't apply to filling out a written questionnaire. And that written question did say in regards to the 2016 campaign and right. answered no, which would meant that he was affirmatively, could mean that he was affirmatively making the distinction in his mind and answering it truthfully. Uh, okay, but if, the, but if the question here is, did he lie, right, in, in the colloquial sense, I agree with you, it really looks like he lied or misrepresented. But if the question is a technical 1001 or perjury question, that he will have a perfectly plausible argument and it will preclude anybody from seriously thinking about an indictment that he, much like the argument that Clapper made about the 215 program, he was interpreting the question in real time as about, which is actually the context of it, did you, in your role as a Trump surrogate, meet with Russian or have contacts with Russian intelligence officials? The answer to that is no. I, in my capacity as a U.S. senator, met with a Russian diplomatic official. So it 
simply didn't seem relevant to the question. And for for a perjury inquiry, that's going to be the end of the conversation. Yeah, so I think it's overwhelmingly likely, right? The, the notion that he's going to actually face criminal charges on this is, um, I, I agree, that's just But he will absurd. have to recuse himself. I mean, yeah. There's no question at this point. Right. No question. I, I completely agree. I don't know that he will. I mean, that's sort of the shocking part about this administration is, again and again, you're, you're met with situations in which it seems like, the of course thing. he has to recuse himself. Yeah. You know, now he's directly implicated. I mean, like the, the notion that he could actually... Uh, uh, the notion that there's not at least the appearance of bias, which is actually the standard here, is just absurd. That said, we've seen this sort of administration being, you know, basically impervious, right? Just just not caring uh, how terrible things look or, or what sort of the, the uh, appropriate or proper thing to do. Whether or not Sessions, who's, of course, been a senator for a long time and, and is more of the establishment than the rest of them, you know, maybe his sort of basic sense of shame or sensibility will... Uh, uh, control here, but I, I do think it's possible that they will just hunker down and resist this, um, you know, really until there are, uh, you know, congressional investigations, I mean, really, really serious inquiries. So on that point, let's talk about like what the administration has been doing to both hunker down and try to deflect attention on this. So the Washington Post reported, and, and we've reported a little bit on this too, that administration officials did reach out to reporters uh, uh, not necessarily at their request, but proactively reach out to reporters to try and refute the New York Times story of about 10 days ago that there had been this constant or extensive kind of contact, uh, frequent contact, however you want to characterize it, but not just one-offs between Trump associates and Russian uh, individuals. Um, a lot of these we kind of already knew, like we already knew that Paul Manafort and Roger Stone and Carter Page were being looked at for this, uh, but Mike Flynn as well. It was implicated here, context that happened during the course of the campaign, not just after the inauguration. Um, you know, what struck me in talking to administration officials about these issues was that there was very little offered in the way of evidence to refute that reporting. Uh, and they seem to be taking the position that, well, you guys have your sources, here are ours, and they don't agree um, without actually asking, you know, what was underlying our sources or did anyone provide evidence of it? Um, it, seems, it seems to me... That both this shows both a the administration in this defensive position, but b enlisting intelligence officials to do this after the FBI expressly said no, we will not do it because it's an open investigation. That seems different to me. That seems like this is I, I don't I don't think there's anything illegal about what they're doing, but this certainly seems outside the norms. And basically, you know. If we can't get the FBI to go shoot these guys down, what, we're going to get intelligence officials to do it for us? Yeah, well, and and this started, right, with Reince Priebus on the Sunday shows saying he was authorized to say that a senior intelligence source said that the story about ongoing contacts with the Russians was BS, right? So they the White House couldn't get the intelligence community to come out and say this. Right. So they then created their own... Uh, source right. to put this out in public. And then, you know, and then they sought to kind of back that up by making all these calls happen. 
I mean, it just is an unbelievable breach here of sort of right at lots of different levels, right? Um, the fact that there's an ongoing investigation, that there would be any contacts with the White House at all of that sort on, on sort of the subject of an ongoing investigation involving people, you know, on the president's staff. Um, that's really significant, right? There there are um, established protocols for the way those communications are supposed to take place. Um, that, the, that the nature of those, one, is for, you know, the White House to then come out of those conversations to sort of, uh, you know, hold it up and wave and say, see, see, the, the, the FBI agrees with us um, in terms of representations about what the, de- the deputy director of the FBI may be told Reince Priebus, you know, then to actually try and pressure them to, in an off-the-record secret way, go to uh, go to the press to essentially kill the story. Um, uh, then that they would reach even further into the intelligence community, right, and, and conscript those people. And then they've also now infected the congressional investigations because they also uh, uh, apparently convinced uh, Richard Burr to get on the phone with reporters. And Devin Nunes. And, and the amazing thing going Devin to Devin Nunes point, does it in public, so. Right. so yeah. Which I actually think is Lisa's admiral, right? At least he went on the record. He did go on the record, yeah. But going to sort of your point, Shane, about how they didn't offer any specifics, the amazing thing here is they did all of this and they got, n- it, it was all harm, right? So they've, you know, essentially uh, made themselves look more guilty, uh, haven't actually offered any specifics, right? So they didn't actually counter the story because reporters were not going to take the bait. Um, they've made themselves look a million times worse, heightened calls for, for independent commissions and, and uh, new select committees for the appointment of a special prosecutor, all these things. And yet they didn't get anything in return. And so it's that kind of short-sightedness of like, how boneheaded well, also, and, and non-strategically uh, Somebody who was on one of those phone calls, it was, to, to Susan's point, it was bizarre. At the end of it, it was, you know, that was one of the most unpersuasive attempts right. to knock down a story I've ever seen. No, they're there. Yeah. And I mean, and, and, and clearly, by the way, I mean, you know, it raises the question of whether or not said intelligence officials were invoking classified information or privileged information as ammunition, which to, to, to shoot down the story, because it raises the question of, well, how do you know that they're not accurate? Um, and, and then our conversations, that was not really something that they wanted to discuss. But well, I actually think that there's evidence that that has worked for them in the past. If you look at those Washington Post stories that came out on Michael Flynn saying, oh, there's nothing there, sourced to White House officials or, or to senior administration officials, I think this is the press getting smarter. Earlier on, they were able to, to give big name people and and as with the Obama administration or the Bush administration, that was considered reliable for reporting. I don't think that's the case anymore. And I, I think it has worked for them in the past, though. It's frustrating them, too. Yeah. That's that's an interesting point that the press is getting less <clears throat> credulous. Um, OK, well, let's talk about the question of a special prosecutor. I mean, A, you know, do you all think it's time to appoint one? And B, like, what would a special prosecutor or special counsel, independent counsel, what are we calling it, um, what would he or she actually do? And as as a primary matter, too, the statute has expired. So yeah. okay, so I have DOJ a question for Ben on this actually, <laughs> because whenever we were talking about this over the weekend, um, or uh, late last week, and we were working on our piece about special uh, select committees, I said, you know, maybe, uh, you know, maybe they they should reauthorize that law. And Ben had an on uh, an instinctual sort of reaction of no, that would be an absolutely terrible, horrible idea to re- uh, reenact the special, it's the uh, special investigator law. The independent counsel law. <laughs> right. Uh, why is it, why would it be such a terrible thing? Well, I would just, I would start with by quoting Justice Scalia, who wrote the famous words, this wolf comes as a wolf to describe the independent counsel law. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's a, that's one of his famous lines as a justice. And it was written about 
this law. The wolf but, tells you like it is. You know, you know, sometimes a wolf comes in sheep's clothing, but this wolf comes as a wolf. And um, look, the, the independent counsel law was a noble experiment. Uh, it was an experiment in kind of trying to institutionalize the uh, Watergate Special Prosecution Force in statute. It was a dreadful failure. Uh, it created uh, these roving independent counsel uh, operations that nobody could get under control, that had no political accountability for anything, that stayed around as long as they wanted, that uh, some of them ruined a lot of people's lives. Uh, they cost huge amounts of money. And uh, at the end of the Clinton administration, uh, the independent counsel law was allowed to lapse by almost universal uh, agreement in Congress. Uh, and that was the right thing. I mean, it was, you know, whatever one thinks of Lawrence Walsh or Ken Starr or, or some, of the, uh, some of the others who served on it, the experiment was not a successful one. And the arrangement that has replaced it, which is uh, the actually the arrangement that you know preceded it as well, which is that the president and the attorney general can name an independent prosecutor, special prosecutor at their discretion when they think is appropriate, has worked just fine. Now we've had two relatively scandal-free presidencies, um, and uh, but when. Bush did have a problem in the Scooter Libby matter. Uh, the special prosecutor model, uh, you know, he, he appointed uh, uh, Pat Fitzgerald and, you know, that angered a lot of Republicans the way Fitzgerald handled it. But the model worked pretty well. Uh, Obama used it again with the CIA secret prisons uh, stuff with John Durham. Again, worked pretty well. And... Um, I just don't see that there's any cause to 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 bring back that 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 albatross that hung around the neck of our political system. Okay, so you know, <coughs> compelling case, and uh, for further on this, see Ben's book on the, <laughs> on the independent council. Um, but I I think we do still face the question of how can the country proceed in uncovering the facts and drawing appropriate conclusions from Russian hacking and interference in the American campaign with the mechanisms we have right now. Because as you just noted, a, uh, a special prosecutor is at the discretion of the president and the attorney general. Everything that that we know so far and see so far from this White House suggests that they're just going to try and face this down <laughs> Um, in all the ways Susan was describing. And so I think that their bet is uh, they will resist appointing a special prosecutor, meaning that by default, the investigation is carried out by the FBI and the congressional committees. They are assuming that the Republican leadership of Congress will hold the line, which so far it is. And both of those investigations, the SSCI and the FBI, are now tainted by White House interference. And so they've just successfully muddied the waters. And whatever comes out of these investigations, they can claim is not credible or not reliable. And I think that's their play here. So I actually think a lot of that is, is, is wrong. Uh, I, I uh, hope you're right, but so, tell me why. Well, so first of all, first of all, I think it's really important to disaggregate the various investigative purposes that different outfits have here and to uh, talk about w what mechanisms are supporting what results. So first of all, 
within the executive branch, there's two functions that a ro- that that an investigation is supposed to play. Right. One is the normal criminal investigative function. There's not a lot of evidence, at least not public, that there's any crimes here. You know, uh, I suppose if you had active Trump uh, campaign collusion with Russian hacking, that would be criminal. And that's the but, big outstanding question. But yeah. right now, I don't even, you know, I haven't seen any evidence of that. And uh, and so primarily the investigation is a, is a foreign counterintelligence investigation. And uh, that's actually not the kind of thing you normally give to a special prosecutor. In fact, I'm not sure it's the kind of thing you can easily give to Or a would necessarily want to, right? I mean, to your point about Professor prosecutors kind of running amok. Right. You know, c- counterintelligence investigations don't normally lead to indictments. Exactly. So, so yeah. it's so, and and the other thing that they don't do is, you know, to the extent that what we all want here is to he- hear the story told of what happened and to get to the mm-hmm. bottom of that. That is really not something that an FCI investigation ever does. They, you know, it's it's about mm-hmm. monitoring people over long periods of time and finding out what what foreign intelligence operations are up to. And just to, as a point, just to make a point on that too, I mean, so when we say things like the FBI is investigating, it doesn't necessarily mean like the FBI has opened a criminal case. Exactly. It just means agents at the FBI have looked at things. And ha- ha- are asking yeah. questions and are poking around about right, something. Right. Sure, but and, none of that gets to the need to reassure the American public about the integrity of right. our political system. Right, so I'm, I'm getting to that. So the point, So the point is... Nothing that's going on in the executive branch now, whether it's run by a special prosecutor, whether it's run by the attorney general, whether it's run by somebody else, is about that process that you're describing. It's about there may be some criminal stuff. There's definitely some FCI stuff. Um, Now, so one question is, is that stuff better handled by the Justice Department in the regular order or is it better handled by a, a special prosecutor? Second question which is not the same question, is whichever of those that you choose, should Jeff Sessions be recused from either supervising the investigation or making the decision as to whether to call for and and invoke the special prosecutor uh, regime? Now, the answer to that question today is very, very clear. He absolutely should recuse. And that leaves would leave his deputy, who hasn't yet been confirmed, uh, as the acting attorney general for that purpose. Now, the acting attorney general is somebody I would would in that situation is somebody I trust as much as I trust a special prosecutor. So I'm not sure the special prosecutor question is that honestly has as much weight on it as the as as we're all you know instinctively putting on it. What has enormous weight on it is the question of how Congress structured its structures its investigation, because that's the investigation that can actually tell the story to the public about what happened and identify what the mechanisms are that we need to protect and and strengthen in order to, as you put it, protect our <coughs> democracy from foreign interference. And so I think we're 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 focusing uh, on a lot on the executive side and not enough on the congressional side. But I, I sort of, I'm not sure I agree with your premise that there is not evidence of, that this is just an FCI investigation and there's not evidence of criminal conduct. There's clearly evidence of, of potential criminal conduct, conduct to the extent there are FARA violations. So somebody who is who falls in the category of people who are um, being investigated for FCI, right, somebody who qualifies as a foreign agent, to the extent they participated in a camp political campaign, they violated the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Paul Manafort, uh, I think it's safe to assume, uh, 
would be uh, at least there's a suspicion of, of him having done that. Um, certainly allegations of, uh, you know, uh, payment for hacking type allegations, right? That's criminal conspiracy and then the uh, violations of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, receipt of stolen property. I mean, you could think of any number of, uh, to the extent that those allegations of collusion are correct. The other thing is that the thing that started this whole, uh, the entire investigation sort of back uh, early in 2016 was CIA uh, uh, intercepts indicating that there was uh, foreign money coming into U.S. into the U.S. election. That's a crime as well, to the extent that somebody was in the campaign was facilitating the receipt of foreign money. So while I agree, there's nothing on there's not that kind of evidence on the table that says you know there's clear criminal conduct here. I think what we are talking about is is. It is sort of the the FCI investigation with lots of different threads of potential criminal conduct underneath it. So just to be clear, I'm not saying that there's no uh, criminal activity and I'm not saying that there's no uh, possible threads that could lead to indictments. Uh, I'm saying something a little bit more modest than that, which is that uh, right now we don't have a lot of evidence that there's a criminal investigation going. We've seen no evidence of a grand jury. We've seen no evidence of... uh, you know, uh, of 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 uh, grand jury subpoenas, or you know, sort of any any act of the sort of activity you normally associate with a criminal investigation. And when you look at the the underlying fundamental underlying behavior, uh, you're really still trying to get your hands around what was Russia trying to do, and was anybody you know who who was in contact with them. And those are fundamentally not criminal questions as an initial matter, though they can lead to them. You know, I think that's a fair point. And listening to all of this back and forth, I am persuaded that actually the best course is neither an FBI investigation or a congressional investigation, but an independent bipartisan commission that can speak directly to the American people. But I am so doubtful that the Republican leadership would allow that kind of legislation to go forward. Well, so Ben and I wrote a piece late last week on this precise issue because there has been lots of calls for the bipartisan independent commission, something on the model of the 9-11 commission. Um, our point is um, what you actually want is the select committee um, that even though people have sort of warm, fuzzy feelings about um, uh, the success of the 9-11 commission and right, the sort of sense of this um, uh, politically insulated uh, potential body, one, you're never going to get the votes to get it passed. And so right, you, you need a veto-proof majority because um, Trump is sure to veto it. Um, which you don't need in the context of the select commission. Um, but even if you were able to get a commission, uh, the committee structure, the select committee structure is actually a far more powerful instrument to have a truly adversarial engagement uh, uh, with Congress the executive. Congress appointing a select committee. Right. So yeah. Congress creating a new select committee, something um, that, uh, right, so it, this, these issues implicate the jurisdictions of lots of different uh, uh, committees. Um, uh, and so it's, right, and, and it's not unusual to appoint select committees to investigate sort of criminal actions, right? So Watergate and Iran-Contra. There's there's lots of sort of historical examples. And that whenever you look at the issues of sort of when that when Congress has a, has to vindicate its rights in court regarding subpoenas and, and sort of all sorts of other issues, executive privilege, um, the select committee is able to assert Congress's rights in court in a more powerful way. Um, they also have sort of their full basket of congressional tools, right, of like, I don't know, if you don't produce a document, we're going to take away your, your travel budget. We're yeah. going to do this right. All those sort of little. Why is that? Uh, why is that better than letting the House and Senate Intel committees do their own 
investigations? Uh, because the House and uh, it's funny you should ask because we also address this. Um, uh, because the because one th- those investigations are tainted um, to the extent right the SSCI is clearly the most um, uh, advanced investigation, and I do think that should keep on going. I'm not right. saying that that should be shut down. Um, but Burr's phone calls just call into credibility. Right, tainted because they really prejudged the outcome. Right, so so yeah. sort of just undermining sort of perceptions of integrity and legitimacy. Um, two, they're not staffed like at the appropriate levels. The SSCI is already has a really important oversight job. They're already stretched. Yeah, and busy. so the idea that they can you can then task them with this immense investigation, which by the way, some of the conduct uh, that's being investigated is still ongoing, right? So like right. additional complex features, you really do need the formation of a new committee. Um, and you need the chair of that committee to be somebody who is credible and committed to getting to the bottom of the truth. Lindsey Graham, John McCain, Susan Collins, you could come up with sort of a list of people. Uh, so that and that's and that's going to be the most important feature in terms of whether or not it's successful. All right, let's move on from Russia and talk now about Yemen. Um, a functioning country. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful Yemen, come. <laughs> Your next vacation destination. Uh, overnight, while all these other things were happening, the U.S. conducted about 20 airstrikes uh, in Yemen against targets uh, their al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, Peninsula or al-Qaeda in Yemen. That also, of course, follows the recent raid in Yemen uh, by U.S. forces on the ground there in which a Navy SEAL was killed. Tomorrow, let me ask you, I mean, my first question on this is, you know, if the if we were willing to do all these airstrikes, why didn't we just do that instead of a raid in the first place? Because it sounds like from reports, I think, in NBC and elsewhere that we're not getting a lot of intelligence out of the ground raid that we did. But you know, which which we making first of all is like why we just bombed twenty targets overnight in Yemen. I I think there are a couple things going on here. Um, one is, and this is a little bit of a pattern I think emerging from the Trump White House. You know, the raid on which the Navy SEAL Ryan Owens was killed, uh, along with a couple dozen Yemeni civilians. Um, it was apparently a concept of operations that the Pentagon had developed and vetted, um, but had not, uh, according to Obama administration officials, had not been approved in the White House prior to the inauguration. And they deli- they decided uh, consciously to defer those decisions to the Trump administration. And then Trump uh, apparently approved uh, this operation or this type of operation without a full interagency process with an NSC that, as we know from a lot of news reports, is not well staffed and not running a normal set of interagency consultations. Um, and so, you know, the, the kind of reversion to airstrikes and the stepping up of airstrikes, um, could to some extent, uh, represent uh, the White House kind of turning back to the Pentagon and saying, you know, we're not necessarily in a position to make these kinds of decisions about what kinds of raids we want you guys to take the lead on that. And um, and that, I think, is a perfectly legitimate thing for a White House to do uh, as long as the White House gives some overarching guidance and there is some interagency <laughs> discussion about the implications of stepped up airstrikes, um, particularly as regards civilian casualties, collateral damage to infrastructure in a country that is already um, suffering severely and where the United States needs to maintain cooperation of the local government. So there's a bit of a pendulum swing here. The Obama White House really um, micromanaged a lot of the national security decision making, but especially as regards CT operations, they looked very closely at everything. 
And the Pentagon, I think, like other parts of the national security bureaucracy, felt hemmed in or uh, closely um, uh, monitored. And now they have a White House, which is A, not in a position to do that kind of close monitoring, and B, maybe not so interested in doing it. And so the Pentagon has a freer hand to conduct CT operations that it thinks are necessary um, in a theater where it's fighting al-Qaeda. And and so I think maybe that's part of the explanation. And, you know, we'll see, does the pendulum swing too far? Um, do American airstrikes in Yemen step up to an extent that creates political backlash or that sucks the U.S. more deeply into the into the ongoing Yemeni conflict? Then maybe the White House will pull it back again. Remind yeah, me, I mean, oh, sorry, go ahead. So, I mean, one thing I sort of I, I worry about or wonder um, is is whether or not the White House will now get into a position in which um, uh, the risk of death of a U.S. serviceman is a, sort of their sole calculation, right? Because all of the blowback against this is not the fact that it was a botched raid because it killed a, t- you know, a bunch of Yemeni uh, civilians, um, including an eight-year-old American citizen, which like has sort of been lost from the conversation. Um, uh, you know, that's, that's not a good outcome uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but one of the things that sort of um, has been a criticism of the use of airstrikes and drone strikes and these other things is is that there's um, there's a tendency to overuse those because you don't have to risk you know your own personnel and so to the extent that the Trump administration is learning the lesson that you know hey if you screw up and a military person is killed that that has huge political blowback and you really really get held responsible for what happens but as long as you know you don't have uh, you know that kind of imagery um, uh, that your critics can sort of pound you with, you're good to go. And so I, I worry a little bit that they're going to become not not necessarily risk averse, but risk averse only along one um, sort of axis of risk, um, and that that could have bad sort of strategic uh, uh, consequences in the long term. Headline, it's- Susan Hennessy warns Donald Trump against risk aversion. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I think talk about a man bites dog story. <laughs> the, I I think that's an interesting question. Certainly, the Obama administration took the the political backlash from American casualties very much to heart, and not just the political backlash, but the notion of American casualties in the ongoing wars in Iraq and Afghanistan was something that they took very much to heart. They did like standoff raids. They were they really loved standoff raids. Um, and so you could worry about that dynamic. But actually, I worry about something a little different because I look at the way the Trump White House has used the death of this Navy SEAL uh, for domestic purposes here. And that moment in the State of the Union was incredibly revealing. Pundits across the political spectrum thought it was just an amazingly presidential moment when Trump recognized Karen Owens, the widow of Ryan Owens, who died in this raid. And she looked heavenward, thinking of her husband as she as President Trump extolled his virtues. And, you know, pundits loved this. The public loved it. Members of Congress fell all over themselves. This was the presidential moment. Veterans hated it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, across the spectrum, you see veterans uh, who are deeply uncomfortable with this kind of political use of a grieving widow uh, and questioning still the value of a raid in which one of their own elite uh, folks fell. And so, you know, I, I think actually... 
the White House's lesson from this is that that casualty sucked, but hey, they got something good out of it. Right. I mean, the other thing is that, you know, for that big presidential moment, uh, President Trump also uh, alleged to be quoting uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis and saying, we got, you know, intelligence that is going to save future American lives or sort of whatever the quote was. Um, Then 10 senior officials the next morning come out and say, we didn't get any actionable intelligence. Uh, That raises a real question of whether or not he was actually quoting uh, Secretary Mattis. And and I think that's the question that should be asked of him. Did you actually say that? Um, Because uh, if you're going to sort of evaluate uh, the political use or sort of the the presidential character of that moment, um, surely the notion that the president was was actively lying in order to justify uh, uh, sort of what had occurred and justify justify his own failures that that had led to the death of this person, um, that that would turn it into a rather grotesque moment. Um, and so I would, uh, I'll be interested to see how that particular uh, uh, sort of story bears out because he was so bold as to actually offer sort of this quote. You know, I'm not going to hold my breath to hear Mattis's side of the story on that one. All right, let's move on to object lessons. Ben, I see you have an object over there. I have an object. <laughs> so a I, pointy object. It's vaguely menacing. So... <laughs> My beloved former colleague, uh, Pietro Nivola, uh, used to have on his desk in at Brookings uh, a, pistol, a pistol musket, which uh, always just kind of sat there without explanation, pointing sort of menacingly at his guest chair. Uh, and I once asked him about it, and he just said, it's, you know, it's just so that people know what I'm capable of. <laughs> and uh, the other day, I, I received a, um, a a warning about uh, the state of my cybersecurity defenses. And so I needed to uh, needed to bulk 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 up my uh, my my self-defense capability. Uh, so quite irrationally, I responded by buying a dagger to sit on my desk because um, it, it will won't do... not be coming to any airports near you at Correct. any time. It will not. I mean, <laughs> I will not. Uh, and it will not be protecting my cybersecurity. It will not be helping me against any mal actors. But at least somebody sitting across the desk from me will uh, maybe know what I'm capable of and I'll use it to open letters. So the... They'll know you're capable of opening letters. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So here is my... My... It's really pretty menacing. I yeah, this is very another, uncomfortable. With another um, part of the Wittis mythology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Susan, I also have an object lesson. Um, it is a picture. It's actually it's sort of two pictures, or it's a picture of two different things. Um, it is the framed and famed Donald Trump tweet about lawfare, um, which I've had framed. Uh, I was trying to decide if I should get Ben a world's best boss mug, but I figured that framing the tweet, although later somebody came up with the idea to have it cross-stitched on a pillow, and now I am picking this up. I especially I, I do like that he that. capitalized lawfare. Just in everything that tweet. about it. It's in. It's in. You know. It's it's in a very nice matting and. 
and it has it little nice eggs guy. at the bottom and it just <laughs> really captures a particular moment in time and I'm just I'm really I'm very delighted with it but I'm especially delighted with it because Ben has decided to hang it in his office um, immediately below his handmaiden of power plaque um, which my predecessor Wells Bennett uh, had given to Ben on the occasion of Wells's departure from the managing editor role um, and it's it's uh, recognizing Ben for his many years of uh, of service in towing the company line and defending <laughs> the national security uh, establishment uh, and, and undermining so, civil liberties and undermining <laughs> civil liberties oh right that's right at the top um, and so uh, to have I think there's something sort of symbolic about having going from the 2015 handmaiden of power a richly deserved award to the Trump tweet uh, I think it, it maps the evolution of lawfare and really and <laughs> so you're such a tool <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was I was a tool of the national security establishment then, and I'm a tool of the national security establishment now. There's a lot of continuity. Drain the swamp. Drain the swamp. I like it. I like it. Um, I just have closing thoughts on my object of the week, Warren Beatty. Uh, Are you objectifying Warren Beatty? I'm going to objectify Warren Beatty. You know, I think he enjoys being objectified. I'm sure. It doesn't happen as often as it used to. You know, not as much. Maybe he deserves (laughs) it a little bit. But someone who has had political aspirations, by the way. Yeah. And played them in the movies. And played them in the movies. And And that is a terrible movie, by the (laughs) way. No, it's not. Bullworth? Bullworth. Oh, it's awesome. (laughs) Oh, I love that movie. Like, I do love Warren Beatty as an actor. I question his leadership capabilities, however, after <laughs> mm-hmm. this moment at the Oscars in which he comes out, for those of you you know who didn't see it, and is standing there looking at an envelope that we now know, well, he's presenting Best Picture, says Best Actress Emma Stone, La La Land, and does not know what to do. And it's mm-hmm. a very interesting thing. If you've ever watched Warren Beatty give interviews, he's terrible at them. Everything not good has, at improv? He, he's not good at improv. That's exactly it. And this goes back to my whole leadership question of, like, I think that leaders who are improvisational actually perhaps make better leaders as opposed to ones that need to be given a script and told what to do. And it was this very interesting moment where he's on this stage. He is, you know, a lion of Hollywood. It is the biggest award. And he's standing there looking at what he knows to be incorrect information. It's not like he, like, got lost in his head and thinks he's presenting the award that just came before. And what does he do? He hands it to Faye Dunaway and says, here, who then reads it and then, of course, sees La La Land because she thinks that he's being cute Uh and building suspense and doesn't want her to read it. And so she says, La La Land. It turns out it was wrong. Moonlight won Best Picture and somebody gave him the wrong envelope. And, you know, and PricewaterhouseCoopers fell on their sword and said, this is terrible. And the accountants have been banned from Academy activity. And I'm thinking, dude, you're standing there in the moment. You can see it's wrong. Just turn around and wave to somebody like, mm-hmm. you know, hey, I need help here. What's up with that? Come on, Warren Beatty. Come on, Warren Beatty. I think we should invite Warren Beatty on the show to discuss his leadership failure. Right. Yeah. I just, do think, too. just a performance evaluation. That was an irrational <laughs> security moment. An he irrationally protected report. his own security yeah. by pawning it off on poor Faye Dunaway. Poor Faye who, Dunaway. let's face it. Who oh, just read the card, though. I poor mean, Faye Dunaway, who hasn't had a decent here. meal in months and was just happy to be out for the evening. Oh, harsh. You know? Oh, she's a terror. Oh, she's just all, she's a poor woman. She brought a lot of it on herself. We can talk about that in another conversation. <laughs> I have thoughts on Faye Dunaway. I just want want to point out poor career choices. Both of them, both of them, both of them uh, had the problems they had at that event because they were wearing the product of our non-sponsor this month, uh, which is uh, MeUndies. And if you uh, 
This is <laughs> you, like Versace or something. You're going to have a bad day if you wear mm-hmm. me undies, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and you're going to end up announcing the wrong Academy Award. They were very he, tight, and the blood did not go to his brain. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and, and all he saw was just la la land. And all that could be different, me undies, if you <laughs> sponsored Rational Security. We would save you from these errors. <laughs> sure, we would. Well, that brings us to the end of the show this week. It's been a diverse range of topics. <laughs> 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 Rational Security is, of course, a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions, and you can find our show archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. Find us on Facebook. Remember, when you download the podcast, please leave us a rating and a review. We'd really appreciate that. Call out the sponsor that you think should not be sponsoring this podcast and leave a five-star That's right. It's such a long list. If you yeah. have, a bad, have had a bad experience with uh, a company that uh, – you know, sponsors podcasts. They're not sponsoring us, so we're happy to talk about your bad experiences sure. with them. And just let us know. Um, our audio engineer is Quinta Jurassic. The show is produced and edited by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Jeff Sessions and the Kisliak Before Dying. That's good. <laughs> it's a movie. Yeah. Kisliak, do not call us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if I see Kisliak come up on the caller ID, change that number. New phone, who dis? Yeah. Change the number. <laughs> Run the other way if you see this large, sweaty Russian man approaching you. Hey, he had his he had a better week than his colleague in New York. <laughs> oh, oh. Hey. oh. Too woo! Too soon. Too soon <laughs> wow, were they in a room together? Find out. I bet they spoke on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Our music actually is performed, of course, by Sophia Yan, who's probably reconsidering this. Hiding under a bed at this point. <laughs> On behalf of my good friend Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and tomorrow Coffin Wittes, I am Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.